congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was a number of years ago we were living in South America. We drove on the dirt road from our house to the, the, the main road. And when we got towards the main road, we, we saw more than 50 large black vultures. They were everywhere. They were along the fence, along the side of the wall, on the side of the road. They were sitting on some fence posts, and they were covering the ground on the road and on the side of the road. It was quite the sight. And they were attacking a dead horse, the carcass of a dead horse. It didn't take long, and the thing was picked clean to the bones. In that tropical heat, it was, it was breaking down and decomposing, and it was happening very, very quickly. Now, now why were these vultures feasting on this this flesh which was corrupted and which was breaking down? Why were they feeding on it? Well, because they desired it. That's a desire which fits with their nature. That's what a vulture wants, roadkill. Dead, rotting flesh fits with the desire of the vulture. Or as my catechism students know very well, the word in Portuguese, urubu. That's the nature of the urubu. Now, as we drove by, it took place over a couple of days. As we drove by, we had no desire to stop with a plate and a knife and a fork. That didn't even cross our minds. Why not? Why didn't we desire it? Because that's not our nature. That would be a strange and terrifying thing if a human being were to look at a rotting pile of roadkill and inside them feel the desire to eat it. That would mean that something would be terribly wrong with that human being, even if they didn't actually eat it. If we had driven by every day and kind of looked at it and said, wow, that looks so good. If we'd come close and smelled it and just reached out our hand and touched the rotting flesh and maybe brought it to our lips, but never actually consumed it, it would make no difference whether we ate it or not. It would mean there was something terribly wrong with our souls. Now, this is a picture of sin. And the Pharisees, with their superficial checkbox religion, said it's not a problem if you like rotting flesh. It's not a problem if you look at it and long for it and touch it and bring it close to your mouth and smell it and, and desire it. It's only wrong if you actually eat it. Have you eaten it? No, you're a good person. Now Christ in the Sermon on the Mount shows the radical character of kingdom citizenship that a superficial righteousness, the righteousness of the whitewashed tomb is no righteousness at all. The whitewashed tomb brings death. It is the empty tomb which brings life. 
Jesus Christ was raised for our justification to declare us righteous, and Christ is that righteousness of which he speaks there in verse 20, that overflowing, overwhelming righteousness which far exceeds the fake righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That's the righteousness that Jesus offers to us in the gospel. And it is a radical difference. It is the difference between light and darkness. The difference between the preserving power of salt versus the rottenness and decay of the corruption of sin. The difference between life and death. Now, as we're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to remember what the Lord Jesus is doing because we can get carried away in all the details. And, we, and, and like I said last week with the Sixth Commandment, we can, we can desire to find in the text a whole pile of new little or checkboxes. Well, okay, so it's not just the commandment in itself, but there's all kinds of other things which lead to breaking the commandment. So give me the checkboxes so I can check them off and say, yes, yes, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I haven't broken this commandment. That's not what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. What he's doing in this sermon is he's poking holes in the Pharisees' hollow, superficial law system, their checkbox righteousness. He is exposing it as a fraud. And that's the main thing we need to take away. Now, he began with reference to the sixth command because the sixth command is, has to do with human life, which is the first gift of God to man, that he brings us into existence and breathes life into us. And we saw last week how there are so many ways to hurt, or last sermon, there are so many ways to hurt, there are so many ways to destroy someone, and, and that hurting of others, whether with words or actions or thoughts, is in the DNA of the kingdom of darkness. And it doesn't belong in the kingdom of heaven. And now we come to the seventh commandment, the second great gift that God gave to human beings after giving us life was that he gave us love. Adam and Eve, they were brought together and God presided over the first marriage and marriage was created to be the very height of human love, that intimate love between a man and a woman. And see how God designed that so that life brings love, that love in turn produces life as husband and wife come together and have children. Those children grow up to meet someone else and to love and be loved, and that love in turn produces more life. And so there's this cascading effect of life and love and life and love, which is a tidal wave which covers the earth and, and fills the world with the glory and joy of God until the whole world is covered with image bearers of God, the family of God. That was the way things were planned to be. And that's what we destroyed by our sin. But that's how God made things to be. Now, now, Satan doesn't create anything. Sin is not a something which is created. It, it has no independent existence in itself. Sin is always the twisting of the real and the good and the true. It is the attacking and the perverting of the good. It is destroying. It is, it is uncreating. And that's what murder is. Murder is 
taking life away from someone and putting them back into the ground. It's working. It's, a, it's an attack. It's a blasphemy on the creative power and work of God. And so in the same way, adultery. Adultery is an attack on the work of God, the institution of marriage, that most sacred and intimate love between two human beings. And because it is an attack on love, it is also an attack on life. It's an attack on that whole cascade of life and love. It becomes broken because broken marriage brings death to the man and to the woman and the other third party and the children. And those consequences of brokenness and trauma can go on for generations. And there are people sitting here that know very well what I'm talking about, how much it hurts you as a child. When your mother and father are not faithful in their marriage. And so, just like with the attack on life that we saw in the last sermon, so here the attack on love, the superficial checkbox righteousness of the Pharisees was to be satisfied with not technically breaking the actual law. If you have never been sexually intimate with someone who is married, who is not your spouse, then you're a good person, then you've kept the law in crisis. No. That's nowhere near good enough. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, and it's an accurate quote of the law. The law certainly does say, you shall not commit adultery. We hear it every Sunday morning. But the Pharisees took that without context and apart from the spirit of the law, and they reduced to it, reduced to it to a mere civil and administrative thing. The law is this, you shall not commit adultery. Now, what is adultery? Adultery is defiling the sacred love of marriage. It is perverting it. It is polluting it by including a third person in sexual intimacy, which belongs only to the couple. And Jesus teaches us in our text that it's not just the physical act which is sin. Because the radical righteousness of the kingdom is not in the first place what you do, but who you are. Now perhaps you knew this text was coming up, perhaps you saw it this morning as you walked into church, looked at the liturgy sheet, or read it in your email last night, and perhaps the thought crossed your mind, well, that this text isn't really that relevant to me. I haven't broken this commandment. I'm in no danger of breaking it, either in the terms of what the Pharisees thought about it or even in terms of what Jesus says about it. And if that's the case, if you're feeling that, well, I'm not sure how relevant this is to me, perhaps it is exactly for you that Christ has spoken this word this morning. Perhaps you need to move beyond a fake and superficial checkbox righteousness. And perhaps you need to learn to hunger and thirst for a righteousness which is righteousness indeed. So in verse 28, the Lord says, But I say to you, and he's not adding to the law, he's not updating the law, he's not bringing a new law, but he is fully expounding the full truth of the law. And he goes on to say, everyone 
who looks at a woman. And, and the Greek here uses a, 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 a construction which we could literally translate this way, everyone who is a looker at of a woman. In other words, it's, it's an ongoing thing. He is looking and looking and looking. That's what he's doing. That's who he is. He's a person who is looking. It's not a glance. It's not a look which acknowledges and appreciates beauty or grace or even form and physique. Sometimes we, we look at those words and we think, well, wow, I, maybe I shouldn't look at anyone because I might accidentally break that commandment. That's not the point. This is, this is a person who is deliberately feasting his eyes in a lustful way upon another person in order to desire her. And that's with, with lustful intent. That's the literal translation of the Greek. In order to desire her. And so, once again, this is not walking by someone and saying, well, that's a very good-looking person. That's not, that's not what's going on here. But this person is creepy, staring, even if trying to make sure that nobody sees, drinking in with his eyes, desiring and longing for a connection with this person which is not his to have. Or hers to have. It depends. I'll be using the masculine mostly in the sermon, but it, it applies to all of us as men and women. Now, the, the actual word here that we have translated with lustful intent, just in the Greek, it just means with desire. And the word desire in the Greek here can mean good or bad. It can be a, a longing for something good, or it could be a longing for something wicked. And, and I, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew 13, verse 17, just a few pages further, 13, 17. And you see here the Lord uses this, this uh, same word here, the same word from the same group of words. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see. That word longed is the same word in our text. But it's a good longing, so the translators used a, a more positive word. But it's the same word. It's the same concept. It is longing or desire, and righteous people can do it. Now go to Matthew, uh, Luke 22, verse 15, if you could. Luke 22, 15. And, and you see here, the Lord Jesus uses this exact same verb for himself. Luke 22, 15. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, same word, I've earnestly desired, I have longed to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, so the actual action of longing, really, really deeply desiring can be good or bad depending on who's doing it and what they are longing for, what they are desiring. Here, by definition, it's wrong because the person is longing for and desiring someone who is not his or hers to have, to have that kind of a connection with, a relationship with. But within marriage, it's different. You know, I've, I've, I've heard people say, because of this text that we have before us this morning, that, well, a husband should be careful how he looks at his wife, because he might look at her with lustful intent, uh, desiring her sexually. Well, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. There's an entire book in the Bible, the Song of Songs, which talks about how beautiful and holy that is. These are holy and beautiful desires. 
And I want to speak to those who are engaged or who are, have a, a relationship which is looking towards marriage, either now or in the future you might have one of these. And, and you, the closer you are to the wedding, the more you long to be with one another. You, you, you drop one another off at home and you think, well, how long is this going to go on? Why can't we just be married already and be in the same home and, and never have to be apart again? That's a holy desire. There's nothing sinful about it. As long as sexual intimacy is reserved for the the sacred place where it belongs in marriage, but that desire itself is not shameful. In fact, it is a flame and a passion lit by God himself. The scripture says that love is as strong as death. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And so, in the context of holy marriage, where sexual intimacy is reserved for marriage, this can be a holy longing and a holy passion which brings glory to God. But it is inappropriate, it is sin, when the person being desired belongs to another, or when the person desiring belongs to another. Now, I'm not going to go into all the different ways that the Seventh commandment can be broken. We have uh, some good teaching of the catechism on that. As the catechism summarizes the teaching of God's holy word positively and negatively about the seventh commandment. But I can sum it up in this way. Scripture, and the church confesses this, Scripture teaches that anything which pollutes the holy, sacred, intimate, sexual love that belongs in marriage, by breaking it away from the context of marriage is sin. That includes fantasies or looking at pictures and videos or reading descriptions, revealing your nakedness to someone not your spouse, looking on the nakedness of someone who is not your spouse, seeking physical pleasure of sex outside of the context of holy marriage. And like I said, the church summarizes Scripture's teaching on this in the Catechism's uh, Confession of of the teaching of the seventh commandment. So I won't go too much into it now. And the Lord Jesus says, when that is the case, when there is an ungodly, an unlawful, a perverted and corrupted desire which does not align with God's holy will, then what does he say? He has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is important. It's not the act of looking, but it's the fact that you are a type of person that is doing this looking. It's not what you do in the first place. It is who you are. It is at the core of your being. That's the heart. The heart in Scripture refers to the very inmost core of your being. And Jesus is saying, the adultery is there. And he, and he says it in other places in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. And so Scripture's teaching is this. A person doesn't become an adulterer because he looks with lust. Rather, a person looks with lust because he is 
an adulterer. And there's the problem. The problem that superficial checkbox righteousness of the Pharisees, the fake righteousness of the Pharisees, which is no righteousness at all, cannot solve. Because legalism gives you a false sense of security. You say, well, I've never done that, so I'm fine. And that false sense of security will kill you. The person who most mentions hell in the New Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word hell comes from his mouth more often than from anybody else's. And we've just looked at the sixth commandment. We're now looking at the seventh. And Jesus has made it perfectly clear that if you do not, if we do not keep the commandment perfectly from the heart, the result is eternal punishment. And that means that if you spend your time on earth attacking God's gift of life and love to others, how can you expect a place in God's kingdom? If you are nurturing sexual sin, if you are loving it, if you are holding on to it, if you're feeding it, if you're okay with it as a part of your life, if you're happy with covering it up with the whitewash of superficial righteousness, because on the outside you look okay, then listen. In the name of God, I declare to you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I want to be very, very clear here, brothers and sisters, because we live in a world in which addiction to pornography is not just out there, but it has swept through the church of God as well. And we need to understand that if you're living a life of addiction to sexual sin, if you're feeding yourself with lust and addiction to pornography, you are living in adultery and you will die forever. That's a problem. And Jesus presents a radical solution. He puts before us a radical choice. Either your heart is intent on desiring and lusting after the pollution of defiled and corrupted sexuality, which will lead to your eternal destruction. Or your heart is intent on destroying lust, on rooting out sin, just like we sang in Psalm 101. I'm going to find sin and, and even anything sinful, and it will have no place in my kingdom and in my home and in my family and in my heart. If we're intent on rooting it out, on destroying it, 
the black flag, no quarter given, a fight to the death, hungering and thirsting for true righteousness and holiness. The overwhelming radical righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the two options, brothers and sisters. There's no third way. Like Moses said when he first gave the law, I've set before you life and death, now choose life. That's what Jesus is saying as well. And then he goes on to say something which we can't wait for the pastor to say, well, Jesus isn't really serious here. If your right hand cause, your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. And, and we, we expect the pastor to say, well, of course, the Lord Jesus doesn't mean what he's saying. It's hyperbole. He's exaggerating. He would never ask you to mutilate yourself. I find no biblical reason to tell you that the Lord Jesus is not very serious about what he's saying. Scripture makes it clear that it is worth giving up everything to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is worth giving up your family, your loved ones, your health, all your earthly possessions. It is worth giving up life itself in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is not exaggerating when he says, you know, it's better to enter into life. With one part of your body missing, than to enter into hell with your whole body intact. Is he serious? Yes, he's serious, brothers and sisters. He means what he's saying. Sin is gangrene. And what do you do? If one of your members is corrupted and rotting because of gangrene, you ask the doctor to cut it off because it will kill you if you leave it on. Sin is cancer. And, and what do you do when you have cancer in your body? If it's at all possible, you ask the doctor to kill it, to destroy it, to, to poison it, to, to burn it, to cut it out. Because if he doesn't, it's going to kill you. So with sin, there's no mercy. We, we cut it out with, with large margins. One of the old writers said it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are the two options. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So brother and sister, the the gospel calls us this morning to start cutting. The right eye, the right hand, and if we're willing to lose parts of who we are, how much more are we willing to smash the computer screen that I'm using as a tool for pornography, or pornography consumption or as a means of communicating intimately with someone I'm not married with? But the Lord Jesus wants to think about this. The Lord Jesus wants us to think about this. We can, we can cut. We can smash. We can tear out our, our right eye. But, but then there's still the left one, right? We can still look with our left. We can cut off our right hand, but then we can commit sin with our left hand still. So, so where do we stop? What's going to be left? 
if we start cutting. We can smash our computer screen, but there are other devices, and parents among us know that, especially young children, young teenagers can find all kinds of ways around any kind of fencing that you try to do on the internet. They're incredibly smart about it. You can always find another device, the one that's not smashed. You see, brothers and sisters, the problem is with the heart. And what we really need is our heart to be cut out. The heart of sin. You know, David in Psalm 51, he's, he's slept with someone who's not his wife, then he murdered her husband to cover it up. And, and when he prays to God in Psalm 51, he doesn't say, God, help me to do that less often. I'd like to commit adultery and murder the woman's husband on a less frequent basis. Help me to kind of move away from that. That's not what he says. He says, oh God, Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. He knows where the problem is. And he asks for a new heart, a heart which desires not sin, but holiness, not death, but life, not hell, but heaven. And that is what Jesus is driving home to us. To realize that we have no righteousness to speak of. That we have no righteousness to offer. That the best that we can do is pretend and fool perhaps others and perhaps even fool ourselves. But that what we really need is a new heart that only He can give. And here's the good news, brothers and sisters. He has promised it. Ezekiel 36 and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is the covenant promise of God to his people. And then Hebrews chapter 8, quoting Jeremiah the prophet, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That is the promise of God. To give us a new heart, one which does not love sin, does not desire sin, does not lust after sin, but a heart which is righteous and pure and dedicated to God, upon which is written the very law of God. Now, now, how can Jesus do this? Now, the Pharisees thought that they were all holy and clean and pure because they were circumcised. And when you're circumcised as a, as a boy, the, a little piece of skin is sliced off. And that little piece of skin is considered unholy and impure. And, and so a tiny little piece of their body was sliced off. And they said, well, look at how good we are. We are such good people. But Jesus teaches us about a circumcision which is far more radical. We read about it a few weeks ago when we looked at Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 speaks about a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, not cutting off a little bit, but cutting off the entire body of the flesh. This is the circumcision of Christ. 
And this is our circumcision in Christ when we have been buried with him in baptism. And every believer here has on their forehead that mark and that promise. This is the promise of God in your baptism. I am cutting away the whole body of flesh, all the sin, all that is dead, all that is unholy, all that is unrighteous, all that is rotten and corrupt. I am cutting it out. And I promise you new life, a new heart, and new hope in Christ. And I promise you Christ himself, your perfect, overflowing righteousness. That is the promise of the gospel. And I could say amen now because I have declared to you the gospel. But I want to end by addressing specifically the young men and the boys. Now these principles that I'm about to speak of as we fight against sin, they apply to every one of us, if we're male or female, or the young. And so we can all listen. We can all learn. But I want to focus on the young men and the, and the young boys right now. And I want you to listen very carefully, boys. Because the enemy is targeting you especially. Now, pornography used to be something that was printed in a magazine or in a book and you had to go to great lengths to try to access it. Today, the crack cocaine of pornography is internet pornography which seeps onto all of our electronic devices in so many different ways, even when they're not necessarily connected to the internet anymore. The, the kids can download the, the files and look at them later. And, and that's bad enough but it's getting worse because now, going beyond the crack co cocaine of pornography, we now have the fentanyl of pornography, which is the combination of virtual reality, 3D headsets, and AI-generated pornography. There is a tidal wave of sexual perversion and pollution, corruption, and defilement, which is sweeping our world. And it is almost impossible to avoid being splattered by this filth. And parents, we need to understand that many who are addicted to sexual sin were first introduced to pornography at an age as young as nine years old. And there are many believers of whom I know, whom I know personally who were attacked at that young age, nine years old. And what it does is it destroys your soul. It destroys your self-respect. And it guarantees pain and destruction in your relationships, especially your future marriage. You come into a marriage after many, many years of sexual addiction, addiction to sexual sin, and you're almost guaranteeing great suffering for your spouse and for yourself. 
That's exactly what the devil wants. He wants to destroy life. He wants to destroy love. And boys, if you look at things you're not supposed to look at, you feel disgusting, and you feel like garbage, and you feel shame, and you feel worthless, and you feel embarrassed, and you think, I can't let anyone know. And that's exactly where the devil wants you. That's what he's telling you. He's telling you that that's what you are. You need to understand that he is the father of lies. And what he's saying to you is not true. You are a young boy. The demon of lust is powerful. He has thousands of years of experience. He has conquered kings and emperors. He took out King David himself. And you can't stand against that demon by yourself when you're 9 or 10 years old. You can't do that. You can't stand against this demon in your own strength. Does it make sense to hide in shame? Does it make sense to try to deal with it yourself? If a great, horrifying, dangerous monster knocks you down and, and wounds you, you cry out for help to the people that love you, to mom and to dad and to God. You cry out for help and so do that. Talk to your parents. They love you and they are on your side. Talk to your elders. They love you. And they are on your side. Now, I'm addressing young boys, but this applies to everybody. And they will help you see the truth. And they will point you to Christ. And when you are poor in spirit, and when you mourn and grieve because of sin, and when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus gives it to you. In Christ, your sins do not define you. Jesus defines you. And what does the apostle say? After he's listed all those, that list of horrifying sins, adultery, immorality, and homosexuality, and every other vile sin and perversion. And he says these kinds of People will never inherit the kingdom of God. Then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 to say, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, made holy, you were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You have here on your forehead the mark of God in your baptism. And that mark, your baptism, is preaching to you every day that you have been washed, that you have been made holy, that you have been made righteous, that you are pure, that you are innocent, that you are loved, that you are a holy child of God. Hold on to that gospel that God has sealed with an un, 
erasable mark on your very body. Now, we're going to be ending after the sermon. We're going to be singing some stanzas of Psalm 18. And as we sing Psalm 18, we're, we're celebrating who we are in Christ. You'll notice that, that we sing about our righteousness and our innocence and our purity, our integrity. And we'll also be singing about the fight against sin and evil in the power of Christ. You know, we don't fight sin to become good. But we fight sin because in Christ we are good. The desires of the flesh wage war against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit wage war against the flesh. But I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You are not a slave to sin. You are a royal, freeborn child of God. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ is our only hope, when Christ is our Savior, when Christ is your Lord, when Christ is your righteousness, then you can live the radically transformed life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Then you can rejoice to live a life which is pure and which keeps perfectly the holy law of love. Amen.